Good morning. Thank you for joining us today on, on this wonderful holiday, this time change Sunday that we celebrate by sleeping an extra hour. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great day. Uh, my name is Jason April. I'm the assistant pastor here at Grace, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here preaching with you today. And I'd like to take a moment, uh, just as a quick aside, and just thank everybody who has made my family feel so welcome here. You know, we moved here uh, about two and a half, three months ago, and um, the love that you have poured on to us has just been uh, a little overwhelming. And we thank you for that. Um, it's been a real pleasure to start serving here. So... Over the past couple of months, Ryan has been leading us through a study on the parables. And uh, um, today, we're going to continue that study. And we're going to look into the secrets of the kingdom that are in uh, Luke chapter 19. Uh, it's the parable of the miners. It's kind of a lesser known parable. Uh, you're probably much more familiar with its cousin, the parable of the talents. Um, so that's in Matthew's gospel kind of at the end, and you probably know how it goes. But today we're going to be looking at this passage. It's going to be a little familiar to you and at the same time just a little bit strange. Um, so I'll read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into it. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten servants, he gave to them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they might have gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you will have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came to him, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with, you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, 
that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's direct our attention to it. I'll pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather together this morning as your children, that we might praise you for your mighty deeds, that we might learn more of who you are, Lord, and that is such a blessing, such a privilege. We ask, Lord, that you be very present with us as we study this passage. Open our eyes to your beauty, Lord. Give us ears to hear your truth and quicken our hearts, Lord, that they might beat in unison with yours. Holy Spirit, illumine us. Teach us about our glorious Savior, Jesus, our true prophet, our great high priest, and our mighty king. Jesus, it is in your great and glorious name that we pray. Amen. So, there's a lot going on in that passage. Um, we're probably not going to address all of it, but uh, just to give you some context as to where we are in Jesus' ministry and in his life, uh, he has told this parable in Jericho. So, he's come to Jericho. You probably know this part of the story pretty well. Uh, he heals a man on the road, and then he meets Zacchaeus. And uh, Zacchaeus has climbed a tree, and Jesus has gone up to him to say, I'm going to have dinner at your house. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house, and everybody around him is grumbling. He is eating with a sinner. And Zacchaeus overhears this, and he's moved uh, in repentance. And he responds by saying, Lord, half of everything I'm going to give away, that to the poor. And if I've ever cheated anyone, I'm going to repay it to him four times over. I mean, can you feel the excitement that's building up here? You know, Jesus' response to him is salvation has now come to this house. And the people have seen Jesus perform many miracles. They have seen Jesus heal pretty much everybody that comes to him. But here now is an even greater miracle to their eyes. Because now they're seeing someone who was a wretched and depraved sinner do I mean, what can only be called a massive act of repentance. And he's doing this just because Jesus is with him. And they're getting excited. And they are, they are looking to what is next for Jesus. And they know that he's going to Jerusalem. And they think that because he's going to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is going to come immediately. And Jesus, being Jesus, you know, in classic style, he, he knows what they're thinking. He feels that same excitement, and he wants to temper it a little bit. 
because he knows that he's going to Jerusalem and that the kingdom will be inaugurated, like theologians say. It'll be started, but it's not going to be consummated yet. That there's going to be a long time before the kingdom actually comes in. It's not going to be so cut and dry. Have you ever felt like uh, maybe the Christian life is a long road? Because that's what he was preparing the people listening for. You know, they're thinking that the kingdom is going to come immediately, but their work in the kingdom was going to be slow. They're going to make great strides right off and see thousands converted. But persecution's going to come. And the kingdom is going to seem to wane a little bit. And it's going to be impressed upon them more and more and more that this inauguration, though it's happened, uh, is just a long story. It's going to take their lifetime. In fact, it's taken the lifetime of every Christian since. Um, I sometimes feel like feel like they do. I sometimes feel frustrated with the Christian life. You know, there are times of great blessing when we see uh, massive conversions, and then there are times of great apostasy when you know everyone that we've ministered to seems to be losing the faith. And it's to that that Jesus is speaking here. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at uh, what we're supposed to do while we wait for the king to return. We're going to look at what is going to happen when the king returns. And then we're going to look at where we get the power to live the Christian life while we wait. So, the first question is, what do we do while we wait? Well, let's look at the passage, the first few verses of the passage. As they heard these things, this is starting in verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return Calling his ten servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So two questions. What is a mina? And what does it mean to do business? Well, unless you've done some study on ancient Roman currency, you probably have no idea what a mina is. You know, there might be a footnote in your Bible if you're reading along where um, some scholar has kind of chipped in there. It's a hundred denarii. Well, what is a denarii? A denarii is a day's wages. So we're talking about a hundred days' wages. So it's it's a substantial amount that he gave them, but you know, not just astronomical. It would be the equivalent, you know, maybe of getting, you know, fifteen thousand dollars from your boss, which would be great. You know, I say to the session. It's substantial, but it's not astronomical. And 
this was probably given to them kind of in addition to their normal wages. This was meant to be an investment in them. And with it, they're to do business with the world. They're to do business in the kingdom, promoting the nobleman and hopefully getting a return on his investment. Um, so what does it mean to do business for them? Well, I mean, it's not spelled out in the parable. All he says is do business. I mean, there's no more instruction past that. So, you know, we can think of maybe trading livestock or, you know, buying and selling wine. I mean, who knows? Um, but the expectation is that whatever they do, they're going to turn a profit. So... The question then is, you know, what is a mina and doing business to us? You know, we kind of understand what it is in their culture. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear, and you probably already know that because of the parable of the talents, that the mina is representative of our gifts. Anything that God has given to you, that is your mina. That is the investment that he's made in you. And there are many, many different types of gifts. And it says in the parable that all the servants were given the same amount. Um, in the talents, you know, they're all given different amounts. I wouldn't read too much into that. But um, why did he give us the gifts? Well, he gave us the gifts to do business. Well, what is doing business for us? Well, doing business for us is working to build the kingdom. It's essentially our participation in the Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission, it's going out to all nations and making disciples. And I know a lot of you just heard that you need to go out there and evangelize and make converts. Um, because when we think about the Great Commission, that's honestly what we think about a lot of times that it's up to us to convert the world. But the Great Convention is actually a lot more than that. Um, it's building people up into Christ. It's building his kingdom here on earth. Making his name known and glorifying it. It is worshiping God. And it is bringing other people into that. And we all have different giftings. And because of that, the way that we do business, the way that we participate in the Great Commission is going to look very differently. Yes, some people are given the gift of evangelism, but that's only some people. You know, what are you gifted at? You know, do you have the gift of the hospitality? Then being, you know, participating in the Great Commission means for you inviting people into your home. And being hospitable to them, showing them the love of Christ through that. If you have the gift of teaching, that's going to be going alongside someone and teaching them. It may not even be teaching them the Bible, but demonstrating, you know, it could be tutoring someone. It would be demonstrating the love of Christ through that. The gift of generosity, of course, is easy. You know, people uh, who have a lot of money who are Christians tend to be very generous. And they come alongside people and help them. 
So we know a little bit of what doing business means to us. So how long are we supposed to do this? Well, uh, the parable is pretty clear. We do it until the king returns. We don't know exactly how long that is. Uh, and scripture kind of refuses to answer it, you know, even, you know, in Revelation at the end of the book. You know, the answer that's given to the saints under the throne is just until all of the brothers are here. We don't know. What is certain, though, is even though the wait will be long, it's not going to be forever. That Jesus is coming back. He will return and consummate his kingdom. So what happens when he returns? Well, he'll call to him his servants to give an account of what they've gained doing business. Let's go back and look at the parable. It's going to be similar in some respects with the nobleman interacting with his servants. Starting in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And we see here a picture of what it looks like to be a faithful servant at the judgment. I mean, do you hear the joy in the king's voice here? As he delivers his judgments on his people, it's a judgment of reward. You have done very well. Thank you so much for what you have done. And the extravagance of the reward is just, it's over the top. It's here, I gave you $15,000 you turned it into, say, $75,000 for the second servant, you know, a 500% increase, and, you know, well done. Because of that, I'm going to make you mayor of Stillwater, and Tulsa, and Edmond, and Oklahoma City, and Norman. I mean, the reward, <laughs> that's funny, um, the reward just far outweighs the service that was rendered. I mean, there's nothing to compare. It, it's laughable that anyone re would respond this way. And this is the judgment of the faithful. And I know that most of us are unfamiliar with this view of the judgment. We think that the judgment on Christians is going to be kind of a dour thing. It's going to be a celebration we think that God is going to look at us crossly at the judgment and say, well, why didn't you do any more than that? But that's not, that's not the image here. That's not the picture here. The picture here is 
well done, you good and faithful servant. You had very, very little faithfulness. I put you over little things. And now your reward is beyond imagining. So what about the third servant? This is the servant that most of us kind of secretly worry that we are. You know, and because of that, we might be moved to compassion for him. Um, we know what it's like to be afraid of God. We know what it's like to be afraid of judgment. And we wonder, why is he being condemned for being afraid of God? You know, I thought that the fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. And it kind of seems like he was right to be afraid of the king, given the king's reaction Let's listen again to his words, starting in verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Did, I mean, did you hear that? What is coming through to me is not his fear. His problem is not that he's afraid of the king. His problem is that he views the king in the completely wrong way. He doesn't know his Lord. He accuses him of being a severe man. Did he not just witness what happened with the other two servants? And he says... You're a severe man, and you're a cheat. You reap what you don't sow. You receive what you didn't deposit. And, I mean, that is such a poor view to have. And he thinks, for some reason, that this excuse is going to get him off. You know, I was afraid of you. No, it's not. You cannot call the Lord a cheat. Listen to the, the king's words to him, starting in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's interesting if you go back in Luke's gospel and read the last time Jesus said these words. He actually changes it a little bit. He, he says, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Um, and as Ryan said before, in a couple of sermons back, this, this is a picture of not God stealing from people, but God... Um, allowing evil people to get more evil. The king's point in this is, is this. If you had been really afraid of me, if you had been 
really terrified that I was going to judge you or you were going to lose my money or you were going to misuse your gifts or whatever, you still, if you loved me, would have wanted to serve me. And you would have done something to serve me, even if it was such a small thing as investing the money that I gave you in a bank and collecting that measly 1% interest. No. The problem is that you don't love me. And in fact, the third servant has much more in common with the rebels that didn't want the king to be over them than he does with the with the servants. He actually, he views the master in the same way. So, should we really feel sorry for him? You know, I mean, yeah, we should feel sorry for him that he has a dis- such a distorted view of the king. But what it should really bother us is that he accuses Jesus of being evil. I mean, that's, that's the voice of Satan. And I would, before we move on from him, I kind of just want to press on this. That when you think that maybe he got a raw deal, you know, when you allow that thought to enter your mind, that is actually you agreeing with him in some way, in some small way, that you think that God is a harsh taskmaster. And I think we should be very careful, very careful, whenever those types of thoughts enter our our brains because they enter our hearts very quickly. So, what about the rebels? What about the people who didn't want the king to rule over them? Well, they get killed at the end. And honestly, this is a little bit shocking. And we don't like images like this. We don't like images of God's judgment. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons. We may not recognize them as actually being evil. Or maybe they're just not so bad. Of course, they didn't want the king to rule over them. But, you know, that's not horrible. Perhaps... You know, we're not looking at the fact that treasonous people can poison a kingdom. Inevitably, they try an insurrection. I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. And perhaps we secretly feel, you know, hide it even from ourselves, that God doesn't have the right to be a judge There are many, many reasons why. There's actually, though, a little bit of history here that can clear some of this up, not all of it. But it's important that Jesus was in Jericho when he said this because he's in Jericho. He's looking at a palace, okay? And this palace was built by a guy named Archelaus. You You might remember his name from the Gospels. He's in the Gospel of Matthew toward the beginning. He was Herod the Great's son. And the way kingships worked back in ancient Rome is that just because you were someone's son didn't guarantee you the right to rule after they passed away. And so when Herod died, 
Archelaus had to go to a far country. He had to go to Rome so he could petition the emperor to be made a king. And when he did this, the Jews, they knew who Archelaus was. They had, they had witnessed how cruel and brutal he was just when he wasn't even king, when he was the son of a king. And they sent a delegation to Rome after him, and they were entreating the emperor to not make him king over them. So Jesus, when he's telling this parable, he's actually also referencing something that's very present and in the recent historical memory of everybody who's present. And Josephus actually records that when Archelaus came back, that he did a couple of things. He went to his faithful servants, and he made them mayors over cities. And he also records that everybody who went into the you know went with the delegation protesting his rule was put to death. So in telling this parable, Jesus is bringing that up. And he's bringing up a theme that we've seen a lot in the Gospels, and Ryan brought it out earlier in the series, and that's, <coughs> that's this. When we, as evil people, see and approve of something right, how much more can we expect from the king? Okay, so... In uh, the example in the earlier, uh, earlier in the gospel, he, Jesus said, look, if you evil people, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks you for a fish, will he give you a scorpion? How will not also the father give good things to those who ask? Jesus is saying, listen, you know what happened when Archelaus came back as king. And he had the authority to do as he pleased. Yes, he was an evil king. But you also recognize that he couldn't let treason go. Because if he let treason go, then the Jews would try to overthrow him. And so even though he was evil... You actually expected and in some sense agreed with him putting his, treason, <coughs> putting his treasonous subjects to death. And how can you expect that God, being a good and gracious God, is going to do anything less for people who threaten his kingdom? Because in the end, there's, there's no room in the kingdom for treasonous people. Ultimately, God ending their life is a good thing because it removes them. There are truly people, truly evil people out there. You all know that. And it will be a great and glorious thing when they are held accountable and they can't hurt anybody else anymore. But still, 
that image at the end haunts us. So is that it? No, you're looking at me. Is that it, Jason? You know, we need to be faithful servants. That way we'll be rewarded and not punished. Well, no. No. Why? Because the fact is that you will never have the power to use your gifts for the glory of God with a reckless abandon necessary if you are just doing it out of a promise of reward or fear of punishment. You know, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? That kind of gets at the heart of what the Great Commission is at. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How can you do that? How can you love God that way if at the same time you are only focused or primarily focused or motivated by a reward? Or how can you do that if you are primarily focused on what God is going to do to you if you mess up? You can't. You can't. Because you're all focused on, on you. You're focused on what you have to do or you're focused on what you haven't done. So, how, then, do we have this power to, to live the Christian life? How do we have the power to be good and faithful servants? Oh, Sunday school answer, Jesus. Um, you know, we look at, let's look again at the parable. And see the interaction between the nobleman and his servants. Why did his faithful servants actually stay faithful? It was out of joy of serving their master. They were living as if he was already the king. And they were doing things because they, they were trading because they loved him. Listen to their joy when they present their gift to the master. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. You know, he gave all credit to his king. And he loved serving him. And that, that is where we find the power of the Christian life. When we love Jesus. But how do we love Jesus more? Well, the only way that we can love Jesus is to see that Jesus loved us first. In fact, you know, I told you about him, Jesus, looking at the palace in Jericho. But he wasn't just looking at the palace in Jericho. He was also looking up at Jerusalem, at the temple. And he was looking at what it was going to cost to bring in his kingdom. He was looking at what it was going to cost him to bring his people into the kingdom. He was looking at what it would cost to bring you into the kingdom. We are disturbed by those images of people being slaughtered before the king. Jesus was more disturbed than we are. 
Why? Because he knew, he knew that each and every one of us stood condemned before him as a rebel. He knew that if left alone, his kingdom would be a pile of dead bodies. And he saw us there hopelessly estranged from him, and he had compassion on us. He loved us. It wasn't good enough for him to put the rebels to death. No, he had to save them. And to do so, he became the faithful servant in the service of God and lived our life for us, lived our best life for us. And to do so, he died the death that we deserve to die, the rebel's death, all so that we could become not servants but children of God. And it's there that we find the power. It's there that we finally understand what it takes to live the Christian life and to run this long marathon. It is an all-consuming love of our Savior because he has loved us. And because he's loved us, he's given us the power. In, in fact, you know, all throughout the parable, you know, it, we've been focused on what the servants have been doing, what the servants did or what they didn't do. And in here, we also have the promises of the other part of the gospel, that Jesus didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave us as orphans. Not only are we not just servants anymore, but full heirs, he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us in our work. He goes with us. We don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to be fruitful because he provides the growth. We don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to make a misstep because Jesus won't let that happen. Because everything works to good for those who love him. As we close today, I just, I'd like you to meditate on that. That Jesus has empowered you for service. He has gifted you to serve. He's going to make it fruitful. All you have to do is do what you love to do. And you love to do it because he's gifted you to do it. Whether that's hospitality, generosity, teaching, any way that you serve the kingdom. And just thank, thank your glorious God that he is with you. Let us pray. Father, we come to you day, today floored, astounded, unworthy. We know, Lord, that we have done nothing at all to earn your love, and yet you have lavished it, lavished it upon us. We ask, Lord, that 
you awaken that in our hearts. That you quicken in us the love for Jesus that we so need so that we can actually, we can be faithful. Lord, we know that you are with us, and we praise you for that. Thank you for not letting us die the rebel's death, but instead binding us to yourself forever and calling us into your kingdom. Amen.